Training, mindset, integrity, incremental improvement. What can you do better today? Start right here with the Pendola Project. All right. Happy Thursday, everyone. This is the Pendola Project podcast. And if you can tell from my voice, I am not Matt Pendola. This is Billy Haug. And if you aren't familiar with me, I'm Matt's assistant coach here at the gym. And I've been on the podcast a few times now to discuss training, nutrition, and some other things. Matt is outside of the office this week to work with renowned triathlon coach Bobby McGee and his junior elite athletes at the Olympic Training Center in Salt Lake City. So today's just me in the studio, and we're getting crazy. Uh, Not really, but we do have an excellent interview for you today with an accomplished ultra runner and longtime friend of mine, Logan Williams. Now, Logan was born and raised in the Reno Tahoe area and is currently in law school, uh, coincidentally, at the University of Utah in Salt Lake. But this past weekend, July 10th through the 12th, he was back in northern Nevada to make an FKT, which stands for Fastest Known Time, attempt on the Tahoe Rim Trail, which is a 170-mile-long hiking trail around the Lake Tahoe Basin. It involves over 24,000 feet of elevation change, with the highest point on that route being Relay Peak at over 10,000 feet. Now, Logan was going for the supported record, which means he was allowed to have pacers with him on different sections of the run, as well as a crew waiting at trailheads to give him food, water, and other types of aid. Uh, I was honored enough and, f- and fortunate enough to play a small part in all this by pacing him from Tahoe City to Barker Pass. So this was miles 65 through 81 in uh, his trajectory. But most importantly, Logan did all of this in an effort to raise money for the Alzheimer's Association. And so far, his fundraiser has received over $6,000 in donations. This GoFundMe page is still up, so we'll be sure to include the link to that in the show notes. Uh, that's pretty much all I got. I won't waste any more of your time. So here's my interview with the lawless runner, Logan Williams. Logan Williams, how you doing, man? Good. How are you, Billy? You know, it's been a good week, but uh, man, just it's, it's almost been a week now since you made your uh, Tahoe Rim Trail attempt. I think the real question is, like, are you back to normal yet? Like, what's the deal? Um, yeah, so it's been um, about a week. It's Thursday today, so I finished on Sunday. So it's been about four and a half days since wrapping up the TRT, which is the Tahoe Rim Trail. Um, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling slowly back to normal. Um, a lot of hunger pains, um, weird waves of just intense exhaustion. But aside from that, like the legs are starting to feel better. Um, I'm actually itching to run again. I was kind of thinking about there that last night when I was like laying in bed. I was like, wow, what's the first run going to be um, <laughs> when I'm over this rest week? 100%. Yeah. And to give some context to our listeners, um, they probably have no idea what exactly you just did <laughs> this past weekend. Uh, so why don't you fill us in about your attempt, uh, the distance, maybe some background on the trail uh, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Totally. Um, so this last weekend, I did an attempt at the Tahoe Rim Trail um, record to raise money for Alzheimer's through the Alzheimer's Association. The Tahoe Rim Trail is a 172-mile um, single-track trail that circumnavigates the Tahoe Basin. It's one of the shorter through hikes in the country, um, but it is considered one of the classics and um, one of the most iconic, especially within this area. It's a uh, 100 and 73 miles all on single track with an average of about 8,000 feet of elevation with the highest point being Relay Peak at 10,200, the lowest point being Tahoe City at around 6,300 feet above sea level, um, and with about 29,000 feet of vertical gain um, in its entirety. 
And so I did that this last weekend um, to raise money for the Alzheimer's Association, which is an association near and dear to my heart. My grandfather had Alzheimer's and battled it for 17 years. And so I felt that it was going to be um, something special to do. And so I kind of put that as like the root basis during this whole um, time, especially this within this year. Um, it just feels like there's a lot of energy and negativity, and I thought it would be good to kind of give people something um, positive to look at or look for for a change. Yeah, and you raised over $5,000, right? Yeah, so the goal was $5,000. Um, in the two weeks leading up to it, which was after the official announcement, we were actually able to raise $6,100 and are still continuing to raise money right now. Even Dude, after the event. That's that's phenomenal. And uh, you, you said the fundraiser's still on, right? So, yep, uh, fundraiser's still on. Yeah, we'll put the link to that in the show notes. So for any of our listeners, uh, if, if you care to donate, that would um, be very appreciated, I'm sure. But man, you're no stranger to this kind of event. Uh, folks, again, 173 miles uh, by himself. Well, he was supported, so you're going for the supported record. But just Logan out there on the trails, shooting for... <laughs> uh, the record stand is 38 hours or something? Yeah, so as of today, which is July 16th, the record is held by Killian Journey, um, and it is 38 hours and 32 minutes. And then one of my buddies, Adam Kimball, is actually going for the record mm -hmm. tomorrow, um, and I'm hoping that by the time this podcast comes out, there'll be a new record um, on the Tahoe Ribbon Trail. Um, I'll definitely be coming back, so I'm hopefully chasing Adam's next time I'm back. Hell yeah, dude. That's the kind of attitude we want. <laughs> but just an incredible feat in and of itself that you finished this. Uh, even though your goal was the record, uh, 173 miles, over 20,000 feet of uh, elevation change within that loop, correct? Yeah. Um, what, how, how did you go about training for this? Maybe it's better to start on some background about yourself. Um, you've been into ultra running now for about two or three years, uh, or am I off by that? No, Why don't you fill us in? You're dead on. Um, so I'm 25 years old. I am a law student living in Salt Lake City right now. Um, I started running three and a half years ago after completing a small project of mine in Colorado, which was summiting all of the 14ers in a calendar year to raise money and awareness for Alzheimer's. I got in to running simply because I was pressed for time while I was wrapping up a degree and working two jobs. And I found out that I just really loved running. Um, one of my friends actually signed me up for the Silver Rush 50 miler, which is out in Leadville. That was exactly three years ago on the day that I started the Tahoe Rim Trail. So the Tahoe Rim Trail kind of marked my three-year anniversary into um, ultra running and just running in general. Um, and since then, I've just been training and racing and loving it. So. Yeah, and you are quite accomplished in the sport as well. Uh, do you have any top finishes or... Um current best times that you um just off the top of your head that you can give to the listeners or yeah um so last year i completed the wasatch 100 miler and finished ninth overall and then three weeks later turned that around and finished fifth at the bear 100 which are 200 based out of utah i have a first place in the corner canyon 50k um out in utah um third place just recently at the logan peak uh 28 miler out in utah and then a few other top podium finishes and distances, um, ranging from 50 miles to um, 50 Ks. That is amazing. I uh, just want to say that right now. Uh, basically, that's good. Some background for listeners, though, that uh, basically the Tahoe Rim Trail is not for the faint of heart. And you definitely had to 
specify when it came to your training, especially for a distance like this. So how about we go into some more specific things, um, what you did differently as far as planning out for the Tahoe Rim Trail, what you had in mind as far as uh, your crew, um, your pacing strategy, nutritional strategies, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, so the Tahoe Rim Trail is a different beast um, compared to most races just because it is what's known in the, the running world as an FKT or a fastest known time, which means that it's not an organized event. It's something that you organize, plan, and then do by yourself. So it's a little bit more of, uh, I guess you'd say, preparation involved. There's a little more preparation involved than there would be for just showing up to a race. Um, typically, the route for the FKT of the Tahoe Rim Trail is done clockwise and starts at Tahoe City. Um, but you can start from anywhere and go in any direction. It's kind of the beauty of having the loop mm -hmm. um, course. I decided to start at Spooner Summit and go counterclockwise um, just to mix things up, to get, to get the highest um, section of the course done with and the most exposed section of the course done with um, on fresh legs. One of the factors that was kind of worrisome and it ended up being the factor that kind of bit me in the butt um, was prepping for water mm -hmm. and having crew access um, on those early sections. And so those are two things that definitely kind of factor into everything as like water sources and then where crew can meet to help resupply with water. Yeah. And in hindsight, do you, <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, foreshadowing here cause I know the, I know the uh, end of the story, but do you regret or would you do it again as far as starting from uh, Spooner? Um, yeah. So with hindsight being 2020 and having a lot of time the last or during the event to actually process what I had done wrong, um, I would start in a completely different area and go in a completely different direction. Why uh, is that? <laughs> the lack of water also, um, I hit the area from Barker Pass to Echo Lakes, which is also the desolation area, pretty um, far gone. I was dehydrated and showing symptoms and signs of heat stroke and heat exhaustion before I set up for that 32-mile stretch, and that's the stretch that ended up just destroying me and it it's also not the most runnable section so doing it tired and a little loopy and delirious wasn't the safest bet so I'd actually probably start from Echo Lakes and go clockwise just get that section over with and then plan on having more crew and more water yeah um, stashed throughout the course and I don't think people really understand well obviously our, our listeners are probably aware as far as performance goes in general that hydration is important uh, that's we won't go down the rabbit hole of that. It's outside the scope of this, <laughs> but particularly for an event like this, I mean, I was reading. Uh, there's a great book out there on endurance performance called the RP Diet, so Renaissance Periodization, and they talk about fueling for things like this. And most would consider a marathon to be, you know, 26.2 miles, a uh, endurance event. Obviously, you're looking yep. at the elite level somewhere in the two to two and a half hour range, and then for most folks, uh, maybe trying to go three hours to five hours is, is probably a good goal anywhere within there. Yeah. And we know very well how to really titrate our water, um, electrolytes, carbohydrates to optimize performance in that arena. But as you can probably allude to, it's actually much easier in an event like that to uh, plan out your hydration strategy and stick to it. Yeah. As far as the numbers are very clear, whereas something like the rim trail, which has only been attempted a handful of times and something where mistakes can add hours on to how late you're going to be out there. Um, it can really complicate things, especially when you consider, you know, we don't need, we need hydration for the obvious reasons for depleting what you're losing, but also to absorb the carbohydrates and things we're taking in. 
yeah. um, and speeding up gastric emptying rate and being able to absorb. So fluid loss kind of ex exponentiates in terms of uh, the results and uh, consequences you can experience. So is that kind of what happened with you um, around the 30 mile mark? Yeah, so like I said, I took a risk going counterclockwise. I picked up some water at 30 miles on the top of Relay Peak and thought that there's going to be two natural springs um, flowing a few miles down. Um, those springs typically flow year-round, and since I grew up in the area, I felt pretty confident in those flowing since I had never had seen a year where they weren't flowing, especially during this time of the year. So I drank the water pretty quickly just to make sure that I was getting plenty of fluids and carbs in. Um, I use a liquid... Um, calorie and a liquid nutritional product called Carbo Rocket for all of these longer events just because I find out that that sits the best. Um, it's got 200 to 300 uh, calories per serving with a lot of it being derived from complex carbohydrates which for an endurance event like this is crucial as well as supplying me with um, the right amount of electrolytes that I lose in sweat. And however when I got to the first of the two springs it was dry then I realized I was starting to kind of go and fall into uh, a self-made trap. Got to the second spring at like mile 34, 35, and realized that I was out of water and there was no water flowing. Um, so the next 10 miles from 34 to 44, um, in the heat of the day going toward Brockway Summit from Mount Rose, I was out of water and just knowing that I was trying to triage um, the day from this point on. Because um, like you said, water is an absolute necessity, uh, more so than food. And my plan and initial bet was that I'd have water, at least one fill-up point between Relay Peak and Brockway. And to not have water definitely put me at a deficit um, going into uh, mile 44 and for the rest of the day, actually. Yeah, so, and for those who don't know, I was fortunate enough to pace you for the Tahoe City to Barker Pass section, which was mile 64.5 through 80.9. Mm -hmm. uh, so a relatively short section, but I mean, just that little bit alone kind of um, made me so much more aware of some of the issues that you can run to in an event like this. I remember starting off our loop, you said to me <laughs> within three minutes of running that the section you just completed, which is where you experienced um, a lot of these issues, was the darkest place that you've been to on a run before. And you had to dig the deepest to just stay on track, even with the thought of the record is slipping away, the record pace is slipping away. And I just would want to know how you experienced that. Uh, was there, did you start to lose confidence? And if so, how did you stay on track uh, to, to eventually finish? Yeah, so um, Rockway to Tahoe City was one of the darker places of the run for sure. Um, I blew through the aid station much quicker than I thought. I chugged a little bit of water, but I was still ahead of schedule for the record. And at that point, I was running more on passion than I guess you could say planning, um, which is a theme of mine that we can discuss later. But uh, blew through there, picked up a pacer, Adam Kimball, the guy going for it um, tomorrow, and started realizing about two miles in with Adam that things were starting to fall apart. I stopped sweating. I started getting dizzy. Um, started shivering, um, dry heaving, couldn't keep food down, was having an issue with that. So eventually about seven miles into the section with Adam, I just laid down and took a nap, which wasn't in the plan. Um, and not really a nap, but just laid down and shut my eyes for 10 minutes, kind of let the body adjust. I was 
trying to overcompensate with drinking and now eating and things just weren't getting better. Um, the legs felt heavy. Um, nothing was moving right. I could barely speak um, to the point where I was actually like stuttering and unable to pronounce words right, which is one of the sure signs of um, heat exhaustion and heat stroke. And so I just started getting really worried um, at that point. However, um, with that being said, the record at that point became more of an ethereal goal um, and it became more of a point of pride to, to finish this, to finish what I'd started and to finish what I told people I was going to do. Um, I thought also that I could salvage it just because I had built up such a cushion leading into that um, section. I actually got into Brockway an hour and a half ahead of schedule, even with some of the issues, and actually even got into Tahoe City um, directly on pace um, for my record, which is when I picked you up. And so I thought for sure that I could possibly salvage the day if I just played it a little bit smarter going forward. Um, but I had dug myself too far into a well, I think, to really properly drag myself out in a, in a short amount of time. Yeah. And I do remember, luckily, when we started, obviously the sun started to go down at that point. Uh, the streams along our section actually had water, so we were able to fill mm -hmm. up there. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Peter Light. Uh, you chugged probably a good two <laughs> bottles at the East Station there. Yeah. So we got some fluid, got some electrolytes. Uh, Obviously, we needed that, knowing that you weren't sweating um, and experiencing not only dehydration, but maybe even some hyponatremia as well. But yeah, I think things definitely started to look up. But then what kind of struck me and something that uh, I was definitely ruminating on after was you had been up since 2 in the morning at this point. Yeah. So you woke up at 2, uh, started your fueling protocol and stuff, and then hit the trail at 5.30 a.m. 5. 5. Yeah, 5 a.m. Okay. So you were up <laughs> anyway for a long time at this point. Yeah. So... Another thing you consider in an endurance event like this, unlike the marathon or even a 50K or a 100 miler, is sleep and the deprivation that starts to catch up with you can kill you pretty quickly um, if you're being forced to stay awake, and which in this case you're trying to stay awake so you can obviously finish the race. But at some point you knew, hey, I have to try to shut my eyes here for as little as five minutes and then maybe uh, inject a few 15, 30 minute naps here and there. Was that uh, one of the major limiters in your mind, uh, especially that you had to stay out a second night, um, which was obviously not in the plan? Yeah, so the limiter for the first night was definitely not sleep. It was just the water. Um, like, it took 12 hours to go 32 miles, and at that point it wasn't the sleep. It was just kind of dehydration, um, lack of fuel, and all of that, that caught up to me, and it just became a trudge to the next aid station. Um, however, when I got to um, Echo Summit at uh, mile 111, it became very apparent that the record wasn't in the site, and so that I might even be out, and I was out a second night, and that's when I realized, okay, we got to start focusing on, on sleep. Like, I can't push through um, an entire two days, two and a half day um, run without shutting the eyes. So at Echo Summit, I actually um, fueled, um, a, I think it was like three or four donuts, um, some Pedialyte, some Carbo Rocket, and then like took a 15 minute nap and then hit the trails again. And that was kind of the worst of it. But after the nap and everything, um, letting the food sit, I felt not incrementally better, but well enough where I can keep powering through the sections at a right. decent clip. Yeah. yeah. So, and you're well aware, obviously, of the limits you're pushing and having a crew there and people with eyes on you and looking out for you. You're more confident, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but at least in my 
in my interpretation that, okay, I can maybe stave off or disregard some of the physical fatigue, knowing that my body can handle what's going on. But really, what we're kind of focused on here is what kind of mental framework did you adopt or that you had to uh, get into to push past some of these limits, especially knowing that you're going to be out here for 18 more hours and that the record's out of reach and that your primary goal now is to finish what you started. Yeah, um, so the mental framework is arguably like one of the most important aspects of um, ultra endurance events. Um, more importantly is the distance goes up. Um, I think anywhere like 100Ks, 100 milers, and then especially stuff like this and like the 200s, which are becoming really popular in the sport, the, the mental aspect becomes almost more important than the physical aspect. Uh, and for me, I, I personally focus a lot on prepping the mind as much as the body for this. I do a lot of meditation. Um, especially the weeks and months leading up to events like this. Um, and a lot of the mental space is just knowing that no matter what happens, just to keep moving, that you can keep moving. Um, doing it for Alzheimer's also is kind of huge, having a, a goal or something greater than yourself. Um, I know when I was out there, um, I focused on thinking about a few specific people in my life, even this is common for like the hundreds or specific instances and in quotes that help get me through those those tough sections and then focusing a lot more also on like the styles of meditation where you're just focusing on the moment and that moment is just putting one foot in front of the other and kind of appreciating where you are in terms of the natural beauty that that surrounds you and so being very mindful of yes this this hurts and yes it's not going well but there's still a lot of uh, beauty around you and a lot of really good things going on um, and that this is just a really temporary state of being even though at the moment it might seem like the longest stretch or the longest 10 minutes 12 hours of my life um, and that's definitely one of the things that I like to focus on is just finding the silver lining in every little thing that makes it a little bit more bearable and a little bit more enjoyable. I think that's great and I think uh, a lot of our listeners can definitely learn from that, especially in the time we're living in now, where it seems like <laughs> everything is going wrong, uh, nothing's looking up, but people have found, uh, maybe with their extra time, if, if that's something they are fortunate enough to have, to pick up something new, or see the silver linings that you spoke of, even if things look really dark, there's usually something to be grateful for, and if we can seek that out, and also think of things greater than ourselves, I think that's a really useful tactic. Now, shifting a little bit more to the training. Uh, yeah. I remember another thing that just completely shocked me when we were running along. You said that in 2020 alone, so uh, keep in mind this is the week of uh, July 13th right now, and you made the attempt uh, about six days ago. Mm -hmm. um, so not even halfway through 2020. And you said you accumulated 2,000 yeah, miles? Yeah, uh, 1,960 miles leading up to the event, um, and that's strictly running. Yeah. In um, 2020 alone. Um, there's obviously things that I haven't recorded or, or recorded under other things like hiking, biking, right. things along those lines. But yeah, strictly running miles, I was at 1,960. Yeah, so categorically an insane amount of volume. <laughs> uh, how do you work up to something like that? And as you said, in addition to running, what other training do you use to supplement that um, for whatever reason? Yeah, um, so building up to that, it's, it's definitely something that I focus on a lot is a type of training called periodization training, um, which is made really common actually specifically from marathon training. And that's the idea that you do a three-week to four-week period 
followed by a one-week period of rest. So that's an increase in miles um, for three to four weeks, followed by a decrease in miles and intensity for the one week, and that's to allow the body to adapt. Um, so essentially, I'll build up in the early season, working on time on feet, not focused on miles, and seeing how that equates. So I'll do like three or four weeks um, with time on feet being the main primary goal, with speed work thrown in one to two times a week, and then do the one week down. Um, leading into Tahoe, especially the last few months leading into Tahoe, it was a big focus on miles um, and also uh, event-specific training. And so I'm really fortunate enough to live in Salt Lake where we have tall mountains and rugged mountains. And so my focus then became on logging long back-to-back -back weeks leading into Tahoe. Um, particularly in May, I did um, 400 miles of running in May alone with back-to-back 100-mile -back weeks um, each week with about 20,000 feet of gain um, on technical trails and single track. And the only reason I was doing that was just to prepare the body for um, becoming tired, but also being able to withstand the forces of such trails, um, a lot of gain, a lot of de uh, uh, loss of altitude, all while in the heat of the day and all while on technical trails, just to kind of build up the body and the mind for being able to handle whatever came during Tahoe. Um, and as far as uh, substantive and other sorts of training goes, um, I'm not going to lie, I'm not the best at it. Um, during the winter, I do a lot of strength training. Um, I usually take... So that'd be your off-season? Yeah. So the winter is typically the off-season. This year is shaping up to be a little different just because of all the races. Um, I'm also a firm believer in the fact that um, if you want to run better and run farther, you just run more and the body will adapt. Um, in the off-season, though, I definitely focus on strength and uh, conditioning, focusing really on like compound movements such as the squat, the deadlift, um, and lunges, and then also focusing on climbing. Um, I really love climbing. And I really like just the balance that it brings in terms of actually building up a core, back, good posterior chain, and then um, a decent upper body for, for a runner, um, as well as coordination, because I find out that the coordination aspect is something that is key, um, especially when you're running a lot of trails. And so I know that like I jump rope um, almost every day just to keep the toes um, and the body like somewhat in a state of like readiness. I was to do something like this again, yeah. keeping everything in sync. I'm really glad you brought up the jump rope because something we've been doing actually in the past few weeks with our runners is incorporating jump rope multiple times a week. As far as volume too, um, I really like what you said. Obviously, we should focus on what you said about periodization or basically another way of saying progressive overload. Yeah. You know, we know that linear increases don't really exist unless you're a novice, so you can't just like keep throwing weight on the bar and expect to squat you know, the same amount of reps week to week. You do have to as you said, have a mesocycle and then a deload period. Yeah. Uh, but eventually, yeah, we want to, like you said, increase the mileage, um, particularly in this kind of event, you know, where in your off-season coming back, maybe you can only handle 50, 70-mile weeks, mm -hmm. but, well, like, holy crap, you're going to be running 170 at some point. So yeah. there's going to have to be a volume landmark you're going to have to hit. But again, we can't just go in a linear fashion. There's got to be some sort of pivot weeks or something in there. So that's great. And also the compound lifts, too, you know, are huge advocate mm -hmm. of that here. Obviously, um, in terms of just maximal force production, you know, engaging the most muscle mass as possible. And then some of the evidence, too, there around, like, injury risk reduction. So, yeah. man, I'm not surprised at all because, <laughs> uh, I mean, you've always been a stellar athlete. I remember in high school, um, which I feel like this is worth noting because another thing we like to preach here is um, not specializing too early. Mm -hmm. And you played soccer and were on the ski team yep. in high school. 
but outside of that, no running whatsoever. So running in soccer and cross training, I'm assuming. But, you know, you didn't run track or anything like that. No. And I really think, uh, you know, viewing as a third person, that, that helps you in the long run. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, there's a great book out there called Range by David Epstein that kind of makes the argument that um, a lot of people are specializing too early now and that the generalist has a lot of advantages even when it comes to something um, as simple as running. And I'm saying that relatively. Obviously, it's still a complex sport, but compared to something like the Olympic lifts or some of the more uh, technically demanding sports, yeah. uh, even things like rock climbing, like you said, putting you in a different state of mind, practicing your coordination, those can have more carryover than people think. But I would love to hear your opinion on that. Do you think, uh, would you have rather started running earlier or do you think you picked it up at the right time? I know it's like, that's kind of a hypothetical thing to give input on, but I want to hear what you have to say anyway. Yeah, totally. Um, the more and more that I've like invested into running, the more and more I think about like that whole what if that you were just discussing, um, whether or not if I pursued running in high school, college, things like that. Um, and especially because you're starting to see a lot of um, really prolific um, distance runners, and especially in the trail scene, come from a running background, but they're also older. Um, so I'm one of the younger people in the trail running scene, especially the ultra endurances now, as starting with 22. And so I'm actually just very grateful and fortunate that I picked up trail running when I did, considering that it's been shown in a few studies that the prime for this sort of sport is 34 to 38. Um, so I still got a ways to go, and that's a long time for me to continue to kind of hone um, training my understanding of myself and um, continue to kind of like evolve um, with the sport. And so I think that um, I don't necessarily wish that I had ran more or had ran before starting this. I think it, things happened for the right reasons and that I can only kind of continue to hone and focus in on continuing to prove my improve my weaknesses um, and just understanding and appreciation for, I guess, like you were saying, that um, progression. Um, it's not a linear progression, but it's definitely something that I notice the smallest progressions because I don't have a huge um, base to, to draw from. So even the smallest progression or the smallest splits um, that are faster, I notice and appreciate those a lot more. And so it keeps me coming back for more, which I think is a huge bonus and a huge incentive um, for me as a young athlete to keep going. Definitely. And you are certainly a young athlete. I mean, you're 25 years old, which as an aside, do you know if there's anyone younger that has done the Tile Room Trail and completed it? Um, Killian Jornet said it when he was um, in his young 20s. So young 20s. Um, but he came from a much more prolific background. Right. Yeah. And he, did he make an Everest attempt? Uh, he did. He's the one who did it with that off season. Right. So, uh, yeah, folks, that's who Logan was competing against, the founder <laughs> of the Tower Room Trail. So uh, what we have here is just a really incredible athlete. And you're, you're, you're so right. You are young. And especially with the peak of the sport being 35 to 38, I mean, that's that's way outside the bell curve. When you look at things like uh, Olympic weightlifting or gymnastics, uh, where gymnastics especially, that's one of the few sports where you probably warrant specialization early, which is why you see, like, three- and four-year-olds in the gym yeah. on the rings and that kind of thing. And, yeah, you know, 10 to 15 years later, they're hitting their peak. You know, I think I think the peak for gymnastics is, is high teens. And that's a training age of, you know, 10 to 12, which your yeah. training age right now is two to three years. So yeah. I think it's excellent. And I remember you saying that you think you found your passion. And I think it's fairly obvious now with your accomplishments <laughs> and what you just did. And we're definitely looking forward to what you have in store for the future. Having my master's in nutrition, I'm super fascinated on what your diet looks on a day-to-day basis or how you may change that up. Um, 
either in your off season or edging further towards an event. Yeah. Um, so my diet typically for um, in season training consists of majority carbs, about 75 to 80% carbs, um, a small amount of fat. My body just doesn't respond well to fat. Um, I realize that's about 5% fat and then the rest being protein. Um, I typically stick toward um, more veggies. I don't eat a whole lot of meat, cheese, chicken, things like that. Um, that's just because I kind of found out that they just don't sit well with my body or allow it to do what it needs to do. Um, I eat a lot of eggs, so there's no like plug here for vegetarian or veganism. Um, I think at every diet, especially for long distance, has to be extremely individualized and catered to. Um, and I think that it has to be something that we all kind of appreciate that this isn't a diet necessarily to look good, but it's a diet to perform well. And I think that needs to become a lot of the, the shift in mindset for people, um, is that you're eating to perform, you're not eating to look good. If you're eating to look good, this isn't the diet for you. Yeah. Which you have experience with that as well, because you used to be in bodybuilding. Yeah. So that's a sport, obviously, that's completely centered around aesthetics. Yeah. And uh, especially kind of these arbitrary standards as the, uh, as the scorecard is concerned. Mm -hmm. But how does that, how did that diet then kind of vary versus now? Which, uh, before you begin, I will say I'm glad you had that input because we were talking in a couple episodes ago, uh, fat adaptation, mm -hmm. the endurance athlete. And, I've been someone who's always been geared more to the high carb approach as well, yeah. and protein for most folks always stays around the fifteen to twenty percent range. Uh, but someone like Matt, he's been experimenting with leveraging more towards the higher fat range. So, like you said, it really comes down to an individual level. Um, I try to look at the lines of converging evidence as far as, hey, uh, we're going to be we're going to need to use our glycogen stores, especially when we're approaching higher intensities, and you might run into some issues as far as down-regulating some of those enzymes if you tend to favor a more fat-centric approach. But if listeners want to hear more about that, you can go back and listen to the Theorized Nutrition for the Endurance Athlete episode. But yeah, how does a, a diet that you were following when it comes to bodybuilding differ at all from the one that you're doing now? Um, it's the exact opposite. Um, High-protein, low-fat, low-carb. Uh, majority of the protein source is coming in from lean meats. Um, it's one of the reasons why I can't eat chicken. I ate so much just unseasoned chicken breast during those years that I never want to eat chicken again. So. <laughs> <laughs> Feel you on that, dude. <laughs> so it made it really easy to cut out stuff like that and other meats in my diet. Sure. Um, like I said, I've also dabbled with um, keto and intermittent fasting for running. Again, um, as performance became more of the focus, I realized that I just needed more carbs to perform better. And like you said, all the converging science points to the fact that like we have to maintain and then utilize the glycogen stores found within our muscles, especially for longer periods, um, to be able to perform at a, at a high level or a competitive level. Yeah, we uh, it's pretty much a justified truth at this point that in order to perform, especially at more anaerobic levels, that carbs are your best friend. And uh, <laughs> most, most people listening to um, may not be as interested in the performance side, but maybe their main goal is weight loss and something like that. And that's where we see things like keto and intermittent, mm -hmm. intermittent fasting maybe work. And all diets work for the same reason we covered it before. Yeah. It puts you into an energy deficit, especially in the context of ad libidum feeding, meaning you're not tracking. Uh, yeah, you're likely to lose some weight, but there's nothing magical about these things. But once you start to climb the pyramid of nutrition, uh, as far as the hierarchy of importance, yeah. uh, performance being near the top, because for most people, it just doesn't matter. They're exercising to practice general health and stuff like that. You really have to start to factor in more of these nuanced details. So, yeah. uh, I mean, it makes perfect sense that your diet is the way it is. And, 
is there anything that you kind of changed your mind on when it came to nutrition? Um, yeah, so one of the things that I scratched right away was um, restricted eating. Um, that's something that's really common. It's pretty much all a diet is in some capacity. It's like you're cutting out a food group and replacing it with another food group. Um, I realized that I can't do that. I can't afford to. Um, I need to be hitting about um, four to 5,000 calories a day um, during the normal season um, leading into events. So I'd have to up that by about 1,000 a day um, just simply because that's what it takes to put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. And I wish actually for this run that I had eaten more in the week leading up to it. Mm -hmm. um, I do sodium load, which is a pretty common thing to do. Um, and that's essentially just increasing the sodium intake. Um, I started about a week before the event. And that's just to make sure that your body is um, essentially holding more water. In theory, that's gonna allow you to have a little bit of a surplus in both water, but also the increase in water allows you to hold on to more of that glycogen and the carbs that you're eating during um, the taper week and the week leading up to the event where you're actually supposed to be eating more um, carb-based products. Right, so basically upregulating that uh, antidiuretic hormone so you hold on to water mm -hmm. better, which obviously from what we discussed earlier is going to be a good decision <laughs> to make. And, you know, we talk a lot about energy system development here and basically, like I said, fueling for the work required, something like a 100-meter dash or a lift that lasts five seconds, like your nutrition leading up to that point or things like sodium loading really don't matter at all, right? The event lasts 10 seconds or less. Yeah. But when you <laughs> approach an event that's going to last 30 hours, or in your case, ended up being 50 hours, mm -hmm. these things become really important and stuff that you have to plan out. So good things to keep in mind there. As far as the future goes, what do you have in store for the rest of the year or the year coming as far as races go? Yeah, so um, hopefully this year, uh, with everything, I'll be running the Bear 100 in Utah. Um, it's one of the prettiest races I have ever ran, and I'm really excited to toe the line again this year after everything that I've learned after racing it last year and then with the TRT and everything this year. Um, next year's kind of shaping up to be a big year. Um, I'll be starting off the year with the Black Canyon 100K in February to hunt in Arizona, and then swinging over to the Lake Sonoma 50 miler down in Sonoma County, um, California, um, again in April. And then from there, I'll be swinging back up to Tahoe um, for the Broken Arrow Triple Crown, which is a three-day race series um, up at Squaw Valley. I'll then be hopefully doing uh, another 100 or 200 um, in the summer in July. And then in September, I'll be doing the Rut Mountain Run Trifecta, which is, again, a three-day um, series of sky running races, just like Broken Arrow. Um, and then hopefully at the end of this year, I'll be taking on um, the White Rim, which is a 100-mile loop down in southern Moab. And then, of course, next year, I'll be back again for the TRT and attempt at that with uh, more training and now a better game plan. Woo! Let's go. <laughs> There's a lot of races, but uh, a lot of great ones. That is super exciting. Yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah, Broken Arrow, that's right in our backyard, sort of. Uh, yep. That, uh, are you doing um, the triple? Yeah, the triple crown. Yeah. So it's the vertical kilometer, the 52K, and then the 26K. Yeah. Um, all spaced apart. So I think the first one on Friday is the VK, um, which is about three and a half miles with um, a kilometer of elevation gain. Yeah. So I think like a little over 3,000 feet of elevation gain. Um, the next day, Saturday, is the 52K, and then Sunday is the 26K. That is insane. Absolutely insane. 
Do you get, uh, what kind of like special recognition do you get from that? Is there anything or just, is it all just street cred, you know, for, for the love of it? I, I'm doing it just to see what the body can handle. Um, those races are a little bit more out of my wheelhouse. It's mm-hmm. uh, 5,000 feet of elevation gain um, in 16 miles. Um, one lap is the 26, two laps is the 52. And so it's just a new challenge that I'm hoping to take on and tackle. Um, yeah, I guess you do get a little recognition at the race for doing the trifecta, but it, it would be um, more so just like, uh, I guess, street cred and just being kind of crazy and dumb. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of the theme of this whole thing. Just like, why do people do these events, man? Just dumb. You know? Just dumb. Man. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll start wrapping things up here. A couple more questions. Uh, any books that you read recently? that have uh, either packed into your training, mindset, or just in general that you'd like to... Yeah, so um, one of the books is Running to the Top by author Liard. Um, he is one of the founders of the concept of periodization training and the term jogging in itself for uh, more of an active recovery. And so that's the principle that even during your longer weeks, um, you're incorporating easy runs to help flush the lactic acid, pump nutrients into the muscles and then speed up the recovery process. And it's actually what makes and has made, at least for me personally, the longer like back-to-back 100-mile weeks um, possible. And those like really long stretches um, where in four weeks I'm doing close to 400 miles. Um, and so that's been something that's huge. I, he also focuses a lot on form and technique. So if you're looking for a good just all-around running book, that's definitely the book to go to. Again, that's Running to the Top by Arthur Liard um, or Liard. And then East of Eden by John Steinbeck is definitely one of my all-time, it's my all-time favorite book. Um, there's a concept in there called Timshul, which is the Hebrew translation of free will. Thou mayest, right? Thou mayest, yeah. Um, and so that is something that definitely has just played a factor into my life um, and interpreting just that we're all born of choices and that we're all a culmination of our choices and that all of our choices carry um, profound impact and so it's just constantly showing up with the best intentions and I think that's the best way to go through things especially with things like this for the longer distances love it love it uh now in the future where can people find you if they want to reach out just follow you or uh contact you uh also shameless plug for any sponsors <laughs> anything like that shill for whatever you want uh yeah so right now my uh personal instagram is called the lawless runner um that's just all one word kind of like a little homage to law school and everything. Um, You can also find me on um, the social media platforms of Saltfire Brewing Company, uh, Carbo Rocket, Wasatch Nectar, and then um, my Strava, which is just Logan Williams, and also Facebook. Beer and carbs, that's all you need, folks. Uh, Okay, a couple more questions. If you could leave our listeners with one thing, uh, any kind of teaching or just tidbit of knowledge that you want to dispense to them, what would that be? Um, the one thing that I think is the most important is just always showing up with a smile and never letting that smile, uh, falter, especially when things start to get tough. That's one thing that's always helped me and always been a profound impact in my life. Um, even when the times get hard, you can always find something to smile about. And so just look for those little moments, no matter how dark it may seem, no matter what you're doing. Love it. And then last question for you, what kind of impact or legacy do you want to leave for people now and for future generations? That's a hard question. Um, so uh, my grandfather, who had Alzheimer's, definitely imparted um, this idea that I want to live a life 
worth remembering and that when we pass, we're only as good as the culmination of our memories that people have of us and the stories that they tell. Um, I'd love to leave a legacy of just somebody who encouraged others to get outside, to push themselves, who pushed themselves, um, to pursue their dreams, no matter how crazy it may seem, but to do so um, with a smile on their face and with others' best interest at heart. Um, I think that's something that I really love people to remember me by. Logan, you're an absolute <laughs> inspiration, my dude. I'm so honored to be your friend and have been for so long, and uh, I'm so excited to see where you go and your passion, your work ethic, your intensity. Uh, it's just also impressive and inspiring. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank dude. you. Yeah. And uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, we'll keep. Uh, we'll have all those links to uh, Logan's social media. Uh, the show notes so go ahead and check those out and if you have any questions for us or comments make sure to leave those uh in a review uh thanks so much and we'll be back to our regular scheduled programming next week